Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers chapter 20. We won't read our scripture. We'll just uh, look at it as we go along. I ought to mention that we have present with us a visiting fireman today. We have uh, Reverend John Oliver and his wife from the First Presbyterian Church of Augusta, formerly at the Trinity Presbyterian Church down in Montgomery with Dr. Robert Strong, and we welcome them to our congregation. We've been, <clears throat> we've been following the movement of uh, Israel from the land of Egypt to the promised land, and something we need to have in mind as we look at this 20th chapter of Numbers is the fact that <clears throat> between chapters 19 and 20 of Numbers, there's a 37 and one-half year gap. This doesn't appear... Uh, it's first reading, but when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we begin to realize this. And they are now back at <clears throat> Kadesh, the <clears throat> point at which they had arrived at previously when they were commanded to go in and possess the land, and uh, they balked in unbelief. They refused to go because of the high-walled cities and giants in the land. And then as punishment, they were required to wander in the wilderness for some 40 years until the generation that refused to go in died out. They're back at this same place now, at the end of this period, 37 and one-half years, and something occurs here that just really amazes us. It kind of catches us off guard. We find uh, the same old test being put to them of no water that they had encountered before. And their response to this, this new generation response, as we pick up in the 20th chapter here. In the first verse, we're told that Miriam has died. But in the second verse, this irritation of the people. In verse 2, there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died uh, in <clears throat> when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die here? Now, <clears throat> as usual, uh, Moses and Aaron make application to the Lord. In the sixth verse, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. This cloud that symbolized the Lord's presence, the Shekinah glory, the blazing forth within this cloud, appears. And we have instruction given from the Lord in answer to this application to him. In the seventh and eighth verses, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod... And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brethren, thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Here's the instruction from the Lord. To take this rod that Moses had had with him when God wrought the miracles in Egypt, the plagues, the dividing of the Red Sea, and Moses would hold out the rod. 
And so we find Moses acting on this, but we find the deviation of Moses and Aaron. Moses takes the rod from before the Lord. That is, he takes it out of the tabernacle where apparently it had been placed. And this is what he does. In verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. He deviated from what the Lord told him to do. And as a result, God charges him with sin and punishes his sin. God tells him that he won't be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. We're somewhat amazed at the severity of God here. Here's Moses, who's been faithful over God's house these years. And for this one sin, he's excluded from the promised land. This sin was of something of a composite nature. Let's look at the elements in it. Charles Simeon spells them out like this. He says, there's first an element of irreverence. We notice in the twelfth verse, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Moses didn't sanctify the Lord. He didn't glorify the Lord. Listen to Moses. Ye rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Who did he glorify? Himself. Too much of self-glorification. I'm glad you and I don't ever do that. I'm glad we don't ever take credit for the things we do. We don't think in terms of we built this business or we built this church or uh, we sure did make a good talk or uh, we certainly are intelligent. Uh, We're glad we're not like these other inferior folks who can't seem to do things right. You know what Paul says about that kind of talk? Who made thee to differ one from another? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you've done well in law or you've done well in business, why have you done well? Who made thee to differ? Well, then who deserves the credit for it? Not you, but the Lord. Do you give him the credit? Publicly? And to yourself? Or do you kind of get some kind of a special little glow when people pat you on the back and say, you sure are doing a good job. I sure am impressed with uh, how successful you've been. You know, we can do that in the Lord's work, too. You ever hear anybody say, let me tell you what the Lord did through me. I have that tendency. Do you have that tendency? Well, then we do this. We're doing what Moses did. We're failing to sanctify the Lord. We're exalting ourselves. We're assuming too much of the credit. You know, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, were smitten dead for failing to sanctify the Lord formally. 
As a matter of fact, on that occasion, God said, after smiting them, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh unto me, and before all the people I will be glorified. God would have been perfectly justified in immediately smiting Moses and Aaron here. An element of irreverence. An element of anger. And Moses, through the irritation of the people, lost, as the young folks would say, his cool. He blew it. He lost his temper. He lost self-control. We find him saying, ye rebels. It's too much of what Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, when you say to your brother, Reka, worthless fellow, you're in danger of the council. And when you say, thou fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Jesus said abusive language, this type of attitude toward our fellow man, is breaking the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And he says it condemns a man to hell. Too much of this attitude. In Moses' answer, God, God felt different about the situation than Moses. And Moses is a representative of God, and he is supposed to reflect God's attitude, just like you and I are. In our dealings with people, God was forbearing. Moses was bitter. God was inclined to forgive. Moses was inclined to punish. He didn't give a valid reflection of God. Rather, he exercised that wrath that worketh not the righteousness of God. It's interesting to note that this was an old sin with Moses. When Moses started out, How did he start? In a fit of passion, he killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. And then through the process of years, Moses became the meekest of men through God's dealings with him. Here he is, the end of some 80 years after that original act, and in a fit of temper, he indulges his old sin. What happened? Someone's put it in a little verse. Moses the patriot fierce became the meekest man on earth to show us how love's quickening flame can give the soul new birth. That tremendous change in him shows what God can do in a man's heart. But Moses the man of meekest heart lost Canaan by self-will to show where grace has done its part How sin defiles us still. You think you're getting sweeter? But it's not you. If God were to release you, you would return to your old ways overnight. These keys are acting in a very unusual way. They're just dancing all around. That's the nature of keys. You and I can act in a very different way when God holds us up. But we haven't changed. And if God lets us go for one moment, we'll return to our own ways. Hold thou me up, said the psalmist, and I shall be safe. We need to continually be conscious of the old nature that's still with us. And what we're capable of apart from the grace of God. Otherwise, we tend to self-confidence like Peter Though all men deny you, yet I won't. No, says the Lord Peter, 
You don't know yourself. Yes, you will. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. He let Peter fall to show him his weakness. They can't keep himself, but he did keep him from utter apostasy. An element of anger. An element of disobedience. God had commanded Moses to speak to the rock. Moses spoke to the people and smote the rock twice. And that was serious. You remember when Moses was building the tabernacle, the tent, in which the various articles of furniture would go? Remember how he saw that Moses was instructed over and over and over again, See to it that thou build it after the pattern shown thee in the mount. Why? Because this tent pictured God's way of salvation, the most important information that's ever been given in the history of the world. God's way of salvation. That's got to be made clear. And if Moses interjected some of his own ideas into this pattern, it wouldn't teach the truth about God's way of salvation. What we've seen all the way through this exodus from Egypt, symbolizing a state of bondage that all men are in, to the promised land, symbolizing heaven. That God is using this and the many situations of it as paintings of his great salvation, which he would one day bring in through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is another one here. This is just a painting. We encountered this rock earlier. When they started on their journeys, they were out of water. And God had a rock there. God told Moses then, I will stand before thee on the rock, and you smite the rock with a rod, and the water will come out. Moses smote the rock. Water came forth. What was that all about? A great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that rock was Christ. That rock represented Jesus Christ, who would be smitten from us. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Jesus Christ, smitten for us, for us. from him flows the river of living water. The Holy Spirit is given. But how many times did he have to be smitten? Only one time. Only once, and it was finished. He did a finished work. Now he ever lives to make intercession, to save those who come unto God by him, based on his all-sufficient, once-for-all atonement. Now all we have to do is speak to the rock. It never needs to be smitten again. Ask and it shall be given. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? All you have to do now is come and say, Jesus Christ, I ask you for the gift of eternal life. I put my trust in you. I ask in faith, and I surrender my will to you. And it's given right then, permanently. It destroyed the picture, an act of disobedience. Finally, an act of unbelief. In the twelfth verse, God says, Because ye believed me not. How did he not believe him? Maybe he didn't believe God's promise. That just by speaking to the rock, 
water would come forth. After all, last time he had to hit the rock. You ever have a tendency to rely on the way you did it last time? The way we've always done it? The energy of the flesh smite it hard twice. Don't just trust God's promise. You see, any of that tendency in the church today when the church says, well, if we're going to change the world, we can't do it just by telling men to trust in Christ. We can't do it by just an old story of someone who God sent into the world to die for us and we'll put our trust in him. Lives will be changed. The world will be changed. We can't take that approach. We're going to have to get into politics and a little social action if we're going to change the world, aren't we? You see any of that tendency of the energy of the flesh in the church today? In your own life today? You walk on God's promise, just rely on that. The punishment of their sin is brought before us, this composite sin. God says, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given thee. Oh, that was hard. That was hard. Moses was just heartbroken about that. For 40 years he'd lived with that in mind. We read over in the book of Deuteronomy, the third chapter, where he pleads with God to please let him do it. In the 23rd verse, he says, I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes. And would not hear me, and the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. He wasn't allowed to. We're amazed at God's dealing with him for one sin like that. He does this. We've learned as we've gone through this book that there's more than meets the eye to most of these situations. There's more than meets the eye to this. What does the death of Aaron speak of? What does this denial of Moses leading them in speak of? It does not mean that Moses was not allowed to enter God's true Canaan, heaven. Moses did enter there. A little further on in this same chapter, we read of the death of Aaron. We read that Aaron is instructed to go up to the top of Mount Hor. And it says in verse 24, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, put them upon Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, and shall die there. Aaron didn't go into the pit. Aaron was gathered unto his people. That's the same phrase that's used for Abraham. When a Christian dies, he goes to be with his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They went to heaven. This didn't symbolize, as dying in the wilderness did for so many of these, that they did not enter God's heavenly rest. But this was an illustration of God's dealing with his own in chastisement. When a Christian sins, God chastens him in order that he not be condemned with the world, says Paul. We receive our punishment now. 
so that he not have to punish us later. God deals with us in grace, but he also deals with us in government. There is a significance, though, beyond this. What is the denial of Moses being allowed to enter speak of? Who was Moses? Moses was the great lawgiver, particularly the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Can the Ten Commandments lead a man into Canaan? Can the Ten Commandments save a soul? No. No, they cannot. The law says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't continually do all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, the law of God condemns a man to hell for one sin just as much as for 10,000 sins. The law just says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't continually do all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Moses can't lead the people into the promised land. He's the lawgiver. But what about Aaron? Aaron is the high priest. He represents the ceremonial law, the religious activities. Can Aaron lead into the promised land? No. Aaron himself dies and passes his office on to another like him who dies, who passes his office on to another like him who dies. And over in Hebrews, the point is made along these lines. It says, There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The ceremonial law has been done away with, a disannulling of it. For the law made nothing perfect. Aaron's duties couldn't save anyone. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw now unto God. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth, to make, such, to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself, and it's settled. Aaron couldn't lead us in, the ceremonial law couldn't save, and all of your religious duties can't save you. Your baptism, your prayers, your church membership. Well, who can save? Who can lead us in? You notice who God appointed as a replacement for Moses in that same passage in Deuteronomy, when Moses pleads that God would let him lead him in? God says, No, but charge Joshua, and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. God says, I designate Joshua to lead them in. Who did God designate? Jesus. You know the word Joshua is the same word as Jesus in the Greek? In the New Testament, in the 7th chapter of Acts, the 45th verse, 
speaking of Joshua leading a man, it says, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, and it's really speaking of Joshua, into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the father, the face of our fathers. <clears throat> Jesus led them in. Isn't that fantastic? Fourteen hundred years before the angel said to, me, to Mary, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God said, The one who can lead them into the promised land is Jesus. His name will be Jesus. I tell you what, any one thing this story brings out is the validity of the Bible. The Bible true? Amen, it's true. I challenge anyone to explain the fantastic, intricate nature of this symbolism and the way it all fits together apart from God guiding the writers. God planning the whole thing out and having each writer play his part as he makes predictions and as he fulfills symbols. The validity of the Bible is beyond question. And any honest look at it bears it out. It's its own self-authentication. Not only do we see the validity of the Bible here, we see also the necessity for training and discipline. Paul in 1 Corinthians uses this as an illustration of the necessity of self-discipline. He says those Israelites perished in the wilderness because they didn't discipline themselves. And it's written for our admonition that we might learn to discipline ourselves and not lust after evil things as they lusted. And Paul says, I tell you what I do, I discipline myself. I keep my body under, I keep myself in spiritual shape. And he says it's like an athlete in training. Dr. James Dobson, a Christian psychologist in Dare to Discipline, tremendous book that's just come out, gives us the basic philosophy that produced the now generation. He tells us of an author, A.S. Neal, in his book Summerhill, who ran a school entitled Summerhill, who gives the philosophy that has permeated modern education. Here's the philosophy. Adults, says Neil, have no right to insist on obedience from their children. Attempts to make the youngsters obey are merely designed to satisfy the adults' desire for power. Children must not be asked to work at all until they reach 18, even small errands or assist with the chores. Religion should not be taught to children. Punishment of any kind is strictly forbidden. Adolescents should be told sexual promiscuity is not a moral issue at all. No pornographic books or material should be withheld from the child. On and on and on. And he says it'd be all right if he was the only one who was saying this. But he says A.S. Neo represents an entire era dominated by the Neo-Freudians who reigned during the 1950s and the 1960s and produced what we're reaping today in our young people. He goes on to say this, that the pressures of our modern society are tremendous. And how is a young person going to resist? Only through having built in a loyalty to God, a fear of the Lord. He says that we need to make it clear that the merciful God of love whom we serve is also a God of wrath. If we choose to defy his moral laws, we shall suffer 
certain consequences. How do you do that? It says there's an interesting parallel. In the life of a goose, a baby goose, a gosling, within a few seconds after it's born, undergoes a process known as imprinting. It attaches itself to the first thing it sees that moves, normally its mother. But you can pull a football bladder by it, by a string, and it'll attach itself to that football bladder and follow it everywhere. It imprints itself to that bladder. He says there's a parallel in the case of our human children, that in the first few years, there's a critical period. This imprinting can only be done during the first few seconds. If you miss it for the goose, you miss it for good. And he says the same is true with our children. There's a critical period when certain kinds of instruction are possible in the life of the child. Although humans have no instincts, only drives, reflexes, urges, there is a brief period during childhood when youngsters are vulnerable to religious training. Their concepts of right and wrong are formulated during this time. Their view of God begins to solidify. As in the case of the goslin, the opportunity of that period must be sealed when it is available. To miss it is to miss, he says. That's the reason for Christian school. Right there is the reason for a Christian school. You ever read the statistics of how many people come to Christ after they're 25? Fantastically low. Billy Graham releases his statistics. He says the average person who comes to Christ comes before they get in their late teens. It's during those early years that these religious truths can be impressed and imprinted on the child, and he's really vulnerable. That's why our Christian school, the need for discipline all along. We not only see the validity of the Bible, the necessity for this kind of training, but we see the impossibility of salvation other than through Joshua, through Christ. He alone can lead us into the promised land. Have you committed your life to him? Are you following Moses, the lawgiver, or are you following Aaron, the religious leader? Or have you put your trust in Christ, God's leader, who died for us? He underwent the curse of the broken law, redeemed us from the curse of the law. And now we'll put our trust in him alone as our Savior. Not our law-keeping, not our religious activities, Christ. And surrender our will to him, we will be saved and brought into possession of God's kingdom. If you've never done that, what about right now, today, right now where you are? Commit your life to Jesus Christ in prayer. Let's bow in prayer. If you've never in sincerity committed your life to Christ, but you want to, you pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I need you as my Joshua. I put my trust in you alone to lead me into a relationship with God. I surrender my will to you as my sovereign leader, my master. And in faith, I thank you. Amen.